0: five times. Um, I have won three turnaround of the year awards, delivered over
1: 500 million of uh, EBITDA improvements. Over 50 million, and also subsequently six times the EBITDA number. So I'm not gonna let you leave without telling us what that was all about, Brian. (laughs) So,
0: you know, in my career, obviously I've seen the worst, right? Every other area of the P&L, you know, we really took a laser focus to how
1: do we do things better, cheaper, you know, how do we eliminate extraneous costs, et cetera. Welcome back to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. Joining us today is Brian Cassidy, an experienced chief executive of a private equity-backed setting with a wide variety of industry experience. Brian has some serious accomplishments that he shares in the podcast, both working with private equity firms in an operating partner setting, but also in a PE back setting. One thing he does share is that he has increased EBITDA by over 500 million. Now that is a significant across his whole entire career, 500 million additional in EBITDA is incredibly impressive. Alongside turning businesses from minus EBITDAs to positive ones. Recently, as we discuss in the podcast, 50 million of additional revenue in a business of completely organic growth in a very short period of time, whilst also six times the EBITDA. So without further ado, let's welcome Ryan to the podcast. Thank you very much for sharing your insights and let's jump in. So Brian, if you could give us a 60 to 90 second breakdown of you, please. Sure. You know, my name is Brian Cassidy. Uh, I am now an
0: independent CEO, PE CEO for Hire. Um, you know, basically, if you go back through my career, you know, I started off as an investment banker and then a private equity professional. Uh, went to business school, and coming out, I determined I wanted to go on a path of doing corporate restructuring and turnarounds. Um, that was partially based on some work that I had done before I went to business school, but partially also based on a desire I had at that age to kind of have an outside. Um, influence on the outcome of companies and businesses and how they operated, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I went to work for Deloitte coming out of uh, undergrad, or I'm sorry, out of of business school. I actually had wanted to work for Alex Partners, kind of the preeminent firm in the world, you know, in that field. And at the time, Alex wouldn't touch new MBAs. So they said, go get seven years of experience. (laughs) Deloitte fortunately would. So I joined Deloitte's turnaround group, did turnarounds for them, you know, both in North America and in Europe. Um, ultimately accumulated the uh, required seven years and went to Alex partners and said, how do you like me now? And they said, we do. So joined Alex and cut my teeth there. Got, you know, a lot of great formal training there at some of, you know, kind of the best, you know, operational turnaround people in the world. I tend to focus on the operational side and not the financial side. That was a conscious decision. And also focus on opportunities within Alex that were, uh, you know, kind of mid-market as opposed to the large market things you know, from then, you know, that just led to me being recruited then by directly by private equity firms. I got recruited by Sun Capital Partners as, you know, kind of a a subcontracted operating partner to go into all their businesses and enact performance improvements and also sometimes step in as an interim manager, you know, in troubled company situations. And then ultimately, I started getting tapped on the shoulder to do it, you know, as a CEO in my own right, which was kind of my goal all the way along. Um, And, you know, throughout my career, um, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've been a CEO five times, Um, I have won three turnaround of the year awards delivered over 500 million of uh, EBITDA improvements, you know, throughout my career. So, you know, so far it's been a pretty good run. So, you know, knock on wood, but uh, you know, good
1: success. Very impressive. Thank you for that insight. What one mistake do you see either private equity firms or portfolio companies making? And what would you suggest to correct them?
0: So, you know, in my career, obviously, I've seen the worst, right? Because, I, I, you know, at least earlier in my career, I've kind of morphed to being more of a, a transformational, you know, CEO. So I'm not always called for troubled situations. But, you know, the big mistakes that I traditionally have seen in my career are things like, you know, growing too fast, uh, you know, doing an a- acquisition, not integrating effectively, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I'm not sure that I would call that a PE firm, you know, private equity mistake, because oftentimes I think they're just relying on the management team. And it's the management team that falls down. I would say from the PE firm perspective, you know, the one mistake that that I see made fairly often is kind of a rigid adherence to a predetermined strategy or methodology. Um, you know, private equity people are very smart. Obviously, they do a lot of due diligence. They've done a lot of homework. They've seen a lot of things, um, you know, but too often, I think they tend to simplify, you know, kind of a, a things down to a playbook or, you know, a set of, of Tactics that they use in every instance that that don't always make sense, and I've seen it many times where something that's you know seems you know relatively innocuous or relatively basic and mundane can really damage a company. Like, give an example, you know, part of a playbook, you know, or, or at least a standard playbook, are things like skew rationalizations. Uh, you know, I've been in companies where private equity firm had said, "Okay, well, here's the deal. We're going to do a skew, skew rationalization because that's what we do everywhere. We're going to." do product profitability analysis, find the low-performing SKUs, we're going to cut them. And I, I saw that in a business that I was, in, was running where the private equity firm had done that. The margins in the product lines varied from anywhere from kind of like the high 30s to you know, the high 40s. And they kind of blindly went through, did the analysis and just said, okay, anything below a certain level, and it was at a decent level, it was like anything below like you know, a 40% gross margin, we're going to cut, Well, it made no sense. Because, you know, it's not like the, the, they had losing, you know, they were, it's not like they were losing money on those SKUs. As a matter of fact, they were making good money on some of the SKUs they wanted to cut. Um, but, you know, they had this kind of hard and fast rule. That's what they did. So they said, look, you got to follow it, go follow it, do it. Um, and, you know, what happened, and this is before I came on board, but, you know, I kind of had to deal with the fallout. What happened is they had a lot of customers who, yeah, maybe weren't buying a lot of some of these SKUs that were making a lot of money. Or, you know, or maybe they weren't making a ton of money on some of these SKUs relative to the other ones. But first, they were making money. And second, the customers needed them. So, you know, as soon as they opened the door for this and they, you know, pulled the rug out from under a customer and said, we're no longer going to deliver this SKU for you. We're just continuing it. You know, the customer needed that product for their production. And all of a sudden they couldn't get it. And they were left in a lurch, left a bad taste in the buyer's mouth, left a bad taste, you know, in just the overall organization's mouth. Because now they had to scramble on their end. Um, you know, and ultimately led customers to say, you know what, we're not sure you're really dedicated to us. This is the same old song and dance you have heard from all the private equity firms. They always come in, they do this and we're going to go find out supplier. And even though, you know, maybe we didn't lose 100% market share, but, you know, you lost the customer needlessly over wanting to do kind of window dressing around having done something that we always do, you know, as a matter of course. And I've seen the same thing over and over in, in different areas too, personnel decisions. Um, you know, I've seen it where, you know, there's a preconceived notion around who performs and who doesn't. You know, when you buy a business, mm-hmm. and you know, perhaps there was a aspect of the business that struggled before an acquisition, and you know, led to some profitability issues or some customer losses or whatever. And you know, private equity firms sometimes are quick to you put their finger on exactly who who is the problem. You know, who who there needs to go. And I've been in situations where I walk in and start working with the personnel and you find out maybe that's not the full story, or maybe that is the story, but maybe there were circumstances around it uh, and you start working with people and end up being great, great performers. And I've still had private equity firms say, no, that person's got to go. Um, you know, you left scratching your head saying, well, wait a second. I just, I just had this guy, you know, maybe when I first came, maybe he wasn't a top performer and maybe needed some coaching, but, you know, has gone on to, you know, it dramatically improved productivity in his workforce. It was, reduced, you know, the headcount by 20% has offshored another, you know, 30% uh, of the labor is, you know, spread continuous improvement throughout the organization. uh, And you still want to get rid of this guy, (laughs) you know, so those are the kind of things that I think, you know, private equity firms often do is they kind of, sometimes I think they get a little myopic around the decisions that they've made. And because they're removed from the circumstances, the day-to-day and aren't able to kind of pivot. Quickly. I think sometimes they cling to decisions that they've made or methodologies that they followed in the past that they've applied successfully without thinking about, you know, kind of the the real here and now, um, you know, efficacy of those types of instructions and, you know, those types of actions. And I think it's especially damaging when it comes to things that involve a customer, because all too often I find there tends to be an inward focus um of okay what do we do to optimize an operation or what do we do you know to improve margins etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know unfortunately if you don't have the customer in mind when you make those decisions a lot of times you know you can win the battle by increasing your margins but lose the war by alienating customers forcing them in somebody else's hand and i think that's where a lot of times you know unless you're on the ground uh like you know the operators in the business and you truly understand the customer implications it gets a little dangerous from afar to make those kind
1: of decisions and you know those mandates. Sorry to interrupt. Just a quick mention of our long-standing partnership with Grata. As you will probably know, the private equity scene is constantly evolving, and deal flow is moving now to proprietary and data-driven processes. Grata provides you with the data and information of over seven million private companies. So if you're looking to improve your proprietary deal flow and improve the data access, And reach out to Grata today. Now back to the podcast. It's interesting what you're saying. I agree with, you know, not every firm, of course, but there is firms in private equity um, that do make the mistakes you've shared and uh, do come to conclusions too quickly about the business or about the uh, platform, um, about how they're gonna operate, about how they've done things previously. And I think one of the things which you highlighted earlier was uh, Sun capital partners and the operating partner role and the more and more that we are seeing of that position and that basically private equity investors are leaning on these people in order to make these changes instead of, or at least guide these changes and guide these decision-making process because they've been there, done that, worn the T-shirt, and now they're in a you know coaching role, uh, consulting role, if you wish. In, uh, in the private equity firm, supporting the portfolio and guiding the decision-making, whereas it's difficult when you know, you're know you the one under fire if you're a chief exec or CFO um, for you to influence a different decision um, when it's perceived that they are the the ownership of which in the majority of the time they are um, and that they have majority decision-making process. So I think it's it's really interesting that we're seeing that, and we're definitely seeing that more in Europe. Uh, sorry, more in the US than we are in Europe. From an operating partner position, they call it portfolio director in Europe in the most part. But you know, some capital partners is a business that um, uh, have championed that from very early on and mm-hmm. uh, done incredibly uh, done incredibly well with it. So that's um, yeah, certainly certainly an area I've seen, and I uh, completely agree with you on uh, on that.
0: Yeah, and I'll tell you, I mean, Sun. When I was at Sun, they, they did a great job. I thought they were they were really world class when it came to kind of coaching and mentoring and moving their businesses in the right direction, that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I, I understand as well too. You know, there there is an inherent tension. You know, don't get me wrong, Alex. Um, private equity professionals in general, operating partners especially, are under tremendous pressure. You know, to make changes, to make something happen. I think a lot of them you know, it's an awkward position to be in when you're sitting on the outside looking in and you feel you're being tasked with driving results, yet you don't have frontline authority to do it. So I think there is a natural tendency to want to put out, you know, to kind of tinker and put out edicts and say, let's do this, let's make a change, let's do this, that, and the other thing. In the context of them feeling that's their job to add value, but it's not always the case that it's necessary. Um, I think that, you know, all too often, you know the in their zeal to kind of serve their investors generate returns etc they just feel sometimes too much pressure to force um you know actions that you know might not ne- you know really might not be necessary or you know might be incorrect but it sounds like we're doing something you know so we're going to go ahead and act that so we can talk to an lp we can talk to the deal team we can talk to the senior executives at private equity firm and tell them all the great things that we're doing you know within a portfolio company some of which you know might not make sense yeah absolutely. but you know it's just like anybody you're under pressure they gotta deliver and uh you know sometimes uh, you know that, that that can lead to you know extraneous behavior that is not necessary
1: yeah absolutely and i'm sure we're all guilty of that at some point when we don't have the the full knowledge and uh, and certainly the full understanding so you've mentioned a little bit in your in your intro about the amount of um uh, growth in in business and what you've done and, and the amount of EBITDA creation that you've had and 500 million is certainly a, a big uh a big advert for for anybody uh, probably half of that maybe even a quarter would be a significant uh, significant number um you if you talk about the turnaround side of things um initially and then we'll go into the growth but you've experienced some significant turnarounds in your uh career one being you know taking an organization from I understand was the minus EBITDAs, I won't mention any companies, um, but to the multi millions in uh, in positive. I'm interested to to hear um, if you can share what are the kind of three things that you've done during that process that have moved the needle uh, kind of the most. That you'd be like, look, if I was going to another business, these are the three. These are three things we did in this business, and there's probably three things you should look for in the in the next one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, so the first most important thing is just to understand and focus on where we are here and now. I think all too often when you're in kind of a troubled company situation and you're trying to set things right, um, you know, people go into it saying, well, where do we mess up? What do we do wrong? And, you know, that's important to inform your decision in terms of where you're going to go next and, you know, how you're going to evolve the business to perform better. But, you know, all too often it gets characterized as kind of headhunting and trying to figure out who to blame, et cetera, et cetera. So I think, you know, the first thing that I always do is, is step into an organization and let the people there know that I'm interested in knowing what the state of the current, the current state of the business is. And yes, I'm interested in knowing where things went wrong and maybe where we want to course correct, but I give everybody a pass for what's happened in the past. I don't care if you're the person who ran the business into the ground. If now you're the person who is going to step up and save it, then you're golden with me. I could care less what happened before. And you know, the reason I do that is because, you know, one, I want a genuine snapshot of where we are. I don't want people hiding things. I don't want people, you know, giving me, you know, kind of their uh, you know, their story on the way they think things should go based on what they've done in the past and adherence to trying to, you know, repeat their mistakes to cover them up. So because admitting, you know, reversing course and doing something different would be an admission of a mistake. Um, I just want them to say, okay, bygones or bygones, where are we at right now? What do we need to improve? And once we as a team get all that on the table in terms of where the improvement opportunities are, you know, then it comes down to really good execution. So it's putting in place metrics, putting in place the action plans and holding people accountable, holding everyone in the organization accountable for pulling their weight and delivering, you know, in their their share of the results whether they're kind of frontline, you know, let's say it's a manufacturing firm and it's okay. You're going to improve the productivity in, in, you know, in the plant um, and you're going to reduce waste or improve quality or whether it's the HR department, which is, Hey, you know, we need to reduce our turnover. That's killing us. You know, we've got too many people filtering in and out of the factory, or we've got too much turnover in our sales force so that we don't have continuity with our customers, et cetera. You know, whatever your piece of the puzzle is, it's measuring that continuously, putting in place goals, putting in place measurements around activity to achieve those goals and then ultimately measuring the goals themselves and saying, are we where we need to be? Did we lower our turnover rate? Did we improve our safety? Did we gain new customers? You know, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're not, then reevaluate the tactics that you used, right? So, you know, if we're not making progress, you got to get back together and say, okay, what's, you know, we thought this was the greatest idea ever, you know, to kind of fix and go in the right direction. Um, but obviously it's not getting results. So let's, you know, let's admit that and let's figure out if, is there a plan B or a plan C, or is there a tweak to the plan A that, you know, would deliver better results. And, you know, that that's really what I try to do is kind of keep an open mind. I know it's a really generalist answer. Um, but quite frankly, I think it's really dangerous to go into a situation and make a bunch of assumptions around exactly what needs to be done. Um, it really comes to marshalling the whole power of the team motivating them to you know be part of the solution and you know participate in a turnaround process. And I think that's why I've been able to get really great results is it's not just Brian Cassidy going in and saving a company. It is Brian Cassidy and whatever the size of the workforce is. You know, my goal at the end of the day is to have every single person in that organization coming in every single day with a mindset of I have my day job to do. Which is whatever I do, you know, whatever, wherever I'm, I fit in the puzzle, whether it's I'm turning a knob, whether it's I'm doing accounting, whether it's I'm on the production floor, spitting out, I'm, I'm generating sales. It's that, but it's also every single day. How do I do it better? Or how do we do, how do we, you know, differentiate ourselves from the competition in the marketplace? Or what do we do as an organization to evolve more and continuously improve? And I think, you know, when you get to that level where everyone is coming in every single day with that mindset, you know, it's just incredibly powerful. And that's really how I've been able to turn companies on a dime because it's, it's not me coming in and saying, OK, we're going to do these five things and then that's success. It's me, but it's also 500, 1,000, however many people there are in the workforce. You know, a certain percentage of those people, you're not going to touch them all, but it's a large, large percentage of them thinking the same way and applying the same logic and coming up with great ideas to execute on to improve what the business does every single day in a bunch of little ways.
1: It's amazing how many things come down to the cultural aspects of the business and setting those standards. Not only am I the host of the Private Equity Podcast, but I'm also the founder and managing partner of Rural Selection. Rural Selection is a private equity specialist executive search firm with two divisions, one that focuses on portfolio C-suite executive hires, and one that focuses on private equity direct hires of your back office and investment deal professionals operating across Europe and North America. A unique offering of our service is that we offer a full money back guarantee on all upfront deposits. We typically take around 10,000 US dollars as an upfront deposit to commence the search process. The remainder is then on completion. But that upfront deposit is completely refundable. If you're not happy with our service, we will refund that upfront deposit. No questions asked. How, how do you create? It might seem simplistic, but you know, if I'm thinking if I'm in your shoes, Brian, and this is the first gig I've had, how do you create that level of accountability? Now, obviously, they're going to be communication level, but how often are you communicating with people? How often are you um, holding people to account? And how do you do that? Is that conversational based? Are you using, you know, KPI charts on the wall? What what are some of your tools?
0: So, you know, first of all, I like to do it daily. And when I say daily, I don't mean daily as in I'm out there daily saying, where are you at? What are you doing? But you got to create KPIs and metrics. I mean, you hit it on the head, Alex. You got to create your, you know, your performance indicators. And you need some kind of daily performance indicators. And then obviously not all, all, uh, processes can be measured daily, right? So you might have weekly or monthly, et cetera, but you need as frequent as possible measurements and wide communication of results around operating metrics. And then obviously financial metrics as well. You know, your monthly financials, if you're lucky enough to have interim financial information and get that as well too. But you know, that information needs to be disseminated widely and it needs to be focused on. So I'm big on generating flash reports, I'm big on having visual management tools where the information is all out there for people to see. And, you know, whether it's at the water cooler or whether it's right there on the production line, you know, that information is there and people kind of know what they're supposed to deliver and, you know, what their goals are and they're striving toward it. Because, you know, without information, without data, you know, to measure yourself, you know, you're kind of flying blind and you may get to the right place at the end of the day, but you're just as likely to be disappointed when the actual results come in and say, huh, how did that happen? Whereas if you have your intermediate measures, you know your your operating KPIs that you can manage to, you can at least know whether those are heading in the right direction. And if you form them properly, you know usually you can form kind of a direct correlation between activities, operating metric performance, and then financial performance. You know as long as you do it properly. So you know it, it, it's that, and then you know it, it's also a lot of public recognition. You know I, I I love to celebrate it because I think you know those celebratory things, uh, you know th- those events. Um, And those words of encouragement, and especially in a public forum, I think go a tremendous way to motivating people to want to perform better and wanting, you know, and and people feeling good about what they've accomplished and getting a a positive reinforcement loop where they say, okay, that was fantastic. I want to do that again, you know, and, or someone else who sees it and maybe isn't performing and gets a little jealous and says, wow, well, you know, I can perform too. And maybe they haven't yet, (laughs) but it's a, it's a polite. Way of without going and calling them out on it, of having them realize that, hey, you know, if I really think I'm the cat's meow and I really think that I can perform better than the people around me, uh here's my chance to demonstrate it and everybody will see it and everybody will recognize it. So, you know, that's really how I try to create that culture. And there's a lot that goes into it beyond that. You know, a lot of training, um, you know, you, you just can't, can't expect people just to start performing just because you give them data. So, you know, you have to do a lot of training around interpreting the data. Yeah. Training on continuous improvements. You have to do training on whatever their particular area of expertise is—sales training, etc. Um, you know, they're, 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 you have to arm people with the appropriate skill set, and you can't assume that they have it to begin with. Uh, but you know, that's part of the process of figuring out—you know—why are we not performing? If we're not performing because people don't know, you know, how to perform, you got to train them up to do it, or you got to provide examples. Um, you know, or you have to. You know, create some kind of system of of guardrails around them that guide them in the right direction, so that it starts being embedded in their DNA, and the the light goes on, and they say, "Aha, I get it. This is what Brian means. This is what you know. This is how I achieve results. It actually does work."
1: There's a there's a great quote that's ninety five percent of business problems are people problems in disguise. You talk a lot about people. There is that. In your experience of seeing a number of organizations that either want to grow, either want to turn around um, some level of their business, um, whether it be revenue, EBITDA, or, or something else, is it, do you begin with the people? Is that traditionally, or in your experience, where you find the change that moves the needle the most, rather than looking at, we need to put our prices up by X or we need to do this. And that may obviously be contributed, but is it mainly how do we get the ship righted with regards to the culture and the attitude of these people? It's two things.
0: It's the people and it's the customers. So, you know, you mentioned a lot of things and you're absolutely right, Alex. You know, you can't just focus on the people and say, people are going to develop you or want you to do better. It's always in the context of them applying some of the tools that you talked about, looking at saying, okay, well, why are my costs the way they are? Why are my margins the way they are? you just got to motivate the people to think that way, right? And to be constantly thinking, okay, how do I improve this? How do I improve that? If I'm a salesperson, how do I, you know, how do I touch more customers? How do I improve my closure rate? You know, how do I make them feel, you know, my customers, you know, how do do I support them more with with service and demand service from, you know, the ops team, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, the people are important. It's important to get them aligned and thinking that way and making them feel empowered to actually change the outcome as opposed to feeling powerless. Because, you know, a lot of times people feel powerless. You know they're they're one person out of a thousand. They really don't have an impact, or they have very minimal impact, or what they do is going to be negated by what somebody else does. And you want to make sure they don't feel that way, and you want to make sure that that they're motivated to you know do their fair share. The other aspect of it too, though, that I think you know you can lose sight of is ultimately you know the people matter only to deliver for your customer, and if you're not delivering for your customers, some kind of value proposition, whatever value proposition you've chosen as your positioning. And you're not doing it more successfully than your competition, you know, your people could be the greatest in sliced bread, you're gonna lose them. Right. So if you're following kind of a, you know, premium pricing, premium service model, you know, you better be able to back that up and you better delight your customers and you better be asking them what their expectations are that you have to meet in order to attain that goal of being the top provider. I mean, if you're the low cost, you know, if your strategy is simply, hey, we're going to make, you know, we're going to be a low cost competitor and we don't care about all the bells and whistles. We're going to de- deliver, you know, three flavors instead of 21. Um, but, you know, that's the niche that we occupy. Then, you know, you got to make sure that there's a customer base that really values that. And that's what they want. And they're going to reward you with it. Um, and that that base is big enough and it's profitable enough to, to make sense. But ultimately, you need to listen to what your customers want. Because I think too often, you know, there's a tendency, especially in a turnaround situation to, you know, focus on the internals of, okay, how do I make my revenues match my costs? The traditional way of doing it is saying, okay, well, I can control my costs. I can't control my revenues. So I'm going to focus solely on my costs, which don't get me wrong. That's important, right? I mean, no matter what, you're, by definition, you're going to fail if your costs are exceeding your revenues, no matter what your strategy. But I think yeah. in the long run, you have to position yourself for Success after the turnaround, right? Which involves making sure that you're not neglecting your customers and that they can see that throughout the process, even if they're not happy with some of the things you have to do in order to get profitable, that at least you're doing it in a fashion that's going to leave them at the end of the day, you know, in a better shape from with you as a supplier to them than where they started, right? So it's the if those two things coming together, the people. And the customers.
1: Excellent. And it may be that the answer is is pretty much the same here, but if we talk move away from the the kind of turnaround experience and focus on the growth side, you know, I know from our prior conversation that you took a business from over two hundred million, increasing fifty million, which is not uncommon in private equity. The uncommon nature of that is it's hundred percent organic growth and there's no add ons in there. Now, mm-hmm. that is kind of like the holy grail of, and we had, uh, I think it was Matthew, uh, Matthew, I'm going to forget his surname, uh, might be Graf, uh, might be somebody else, but they they gave us a statistic on the podcast, which... Um, was around 83% of all portfolio companies backed by private equity uh, grow because of the market, not because of the work that private equity does, which is interesting. If a, a, an industry goes from a 4X to a 5X or 7X or whatever, um, and that's where they see most of the growth. But you know, if any private equity firm, what can we do that's in essence perceived as free? It's not, but it's perceived as free. Organic growth. So over fifty million and also subsequently six times <clears throat> the EBITDA number. So I'm not gonna let you leave without telling us what that was all about, Brian. <laughs> and uh if you can give us a bit of the uh, the keys to the castle. Um let's focus around the organic growth first. And I'm sure that ties into the EBITDA, it gives an indication as to what you uh what you implemented there and, and what you looked at to to drive that kind of result. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the organic growth that you're talking about, I think you know, you're referring to a company that I ran
0: Jason, um, and it's it's operated, one of its main operating subsidiaries, Osborne. Um, you know, and the long story short is that it did involve a lot of what I just talked about, focusing on the customer and also having the people, you know, in the organization fully aligned. But you know, as it as it relates specifically to the you know the growth, you know, there were several things. You know, one, you know, obviously customers want it all, and you got to focus on some of what's the most important things to do. You know, and in that case, you know, that particular case, you know, we had to focus on, you know, where were we failing the most? And it was very clear that where we were failing is we weren't delivering on time to our customers. Um, either we were late or we were completely out of stock, period. Or in some instances, you know, we didn't have the product anymore. You know, we weren't producing it. We had elected to kind of prune it, et cetera. So you had to listen to the customers and, you know, a customer saying, hey, look, you know, I." The product's no good to me. I can't sell what I don't have. Um, so you know, we had to rededicate ourselves to on-time deliveries um, and stock fill rates that were acceptable when they weren't before. And you know, so you know, that was part of the equation. Just simply by you know having the product that they wanted, led customers to come back and and purchase when you know before they wouldn't be able to because they weren't going to get the product. So it didn't matter. So part of it was just better execution. Now that took some sacrifices, right? We had to invest more in inventory. Um, we had to adjust our, our processes so that we were more agile and were able to turn on a dime in terms of our production schedule and things like that. It wasn't as simple as just saying, okay, we you know we're going to do better. There was a lot of work around it. And that's where kind of the people came into play. Um, there was also, though, you know, a, a lot of other tactics involved. You know, one, we had to do a product refresh. Um, you know, our, our products were a, a little bit stale and the Marketplace clearly was valuing innovation, so we had to determine exactly you know which products we had that needed a refresh and benchmark them against the competition, et cetera, and then go through our engineering function and you know create kind of new and improved performance from our products. Whatever it was, whether it was that the products lasted longer, whether it was that the products in that case removed more material um, because we were doing you know some abrasive type products and things like that, you know, or you know whether they were you know had a lower cost, whatever it was, you know, we had to determine what that key attribute was that customers were looking for, create a differentiation for us, right? And then go out in the marketplace and tell that story and say, look, here's our test results, you know, us versus brand B, you know, how do we perform? See, you know, we're we're performing better, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was also introducing new products. You know, there were some product line um, extensions and, and also rounding out product lines, where there were gaps in, you know, in just the entire market. And we were able to look very succinctly at the, the individual market segments and say, okay, where's a gap? Where are our competitors not performing? What are the customers looking for? And you know, in a very targeted way, attack certain niches and certain segments and say, we're gonna fill a need in the marketplace that's being overlooked. And you know, that sounds simple, but we actually had to do it across a huge wide product line one because you know, the overall product lineup was, was, was pretty large and you couldn't, there was no one segment that was kind of underperforming. So you had to do it almost like by a thousand cuts. So we had to do this for, you know, four or five different segments, a bunch of different product lines, a bunch of different brands, but we did it, you know, in a fashion where we were very effective at, you know, nailing those types of opportunities. And, you know, that's kind of how we got that combined growth. It was a combination of better execution day to day, so customers felt better about us, could get the products they wanted, and you know came to us for those products and came back to us. And then also delivering into the marketplace what the market was demanding, but maybe wasn't getting because it either didn't exist in the market and we had to come up with a new product, or because uh, a competitor maybe had a weakness that we could exploit. You know maybe they didn't have good lead times, etc., or they had a cost problem, and we were able to come in, you know, slightly below them.
1: You know, more favorable to the customer, etc. So, so that that gives us an insight as the organic growth, and also a little bit of insight into EBITDA. But if we say increased inventory to private equity, they're like, oh, that's definitely not going to increase uh, increase EBITDA. So, what? I mean, six times EBITDA. You've thinned out some of the product lines. You've made some changes there. You've introduced new products. Um, but what? kind of generated that where were some of the underlying areas that you were either surprised on or you would typically go for that would drive kind of that kind of change from an EBITDA perspective is it, it doesn't sound to me like a change of product line would hugely change that obviously increased customer mm-hmm. spend would would yes but not hugely
0: no we did we did a lot on the cost side as well too though so you know I like to attack you know any type of situation I attack on both the top line and the bottom line right? So the top line goal certainly helped because we just strictly added more dollars. You know, we didn't increase our overhead. We added more dollars of gross margin to the bottom line, you know, because we grew the sales, but then also, yeah, we, we actually improved our performance in every single um, in every single income statement category as a percent of sales with one exception, well, two exceptions material costs, because that was in an inflationary environment and it was hard to keep up with the inflationary costs. So we were just about, you know, we we're almost break even there. We we're about to push. Um, and then also our freight costs had gone up. That was, you know, during a period when freight costs were escalating. Right. So we couldn't quite contain them. Every other area of the P&L, you know, we really took a laser focus to how do we do things better, cheaper? You know, how do we eliminate extraneous costs, et cetera. And what that involved was a combination of things. We did some offshoring where, you know, we, we did really, you know, it, we didn't do an offshoring in terms of taking product out of our plant and just outsourcing it. What we really did is we ended up doing manufacturing footprint optimization, where we moved products within our plant network and took you know products from one plant that, you know, at one efficiency level. And were able to move it to another plant within our network um, that had a lower cost structure or had better machinery for that per piece, particular piece of equipment or that particular product, et cetera. Um, so we did a lot of that. Um, We also did a lot of continuous improvement. I'm a big believer in continuous improvement. You don't find a lot of turnaround people talk about that. But, you know, the reality is I find that, you know, actually continuous improvement efforts can start yielding benefits from day one. And I think there are an awful lot of companies that use, you know, that as a buzzword. We use, you know, continuous improvement, lean manufacturing, et cetera. They talk the buzzwords, but they don't really follow it. And everywhere I go, one of the first things that I do is say, we're going to embrace a lean culture and a, you know, continuous improvement culture so that we're going to start from day one with, um, you know, training people on the techniques, and training people on production methods and quality management, things like that. So that we fully know they really have the skills and then demand that they utilize them to, you know, deliver goods more efficiently, um, lower price, better quality, better safety, et cetera. So we did a lot of that as well too. We literally trained the entire workforce across. I think we had 1,500 employees, um, you know, in continuous improvement, and then demanded down to the individual operator level that you know people use the knowledge they gained in their training. And of course, not everybody did, but a lot of people did, and we were able to take out basically 20% of our manufacturing workforce just through continuous improvement efforts. And you know, that was on top of cost savings from you know, doing the offshoring and things of that nature. So, you know, it ended up being a home run that really contributed to our bottom line and, and you know, really magnified the growth in revenues that we had because we expanded not just the sales levels, but we also expanded the margin levels, the gross margins, and then therefore the EBITDA margins.
1: How do you incentivize? Because it's easy saying, guys, here's your training, mm-hmm. here's information, here's tools. doesn't mean they're going to execute on that. doesn't mean they're going to, going to do that. So we come a little bit back to the accountability question, I suppose. But how do you incentivize? How do you ensure that people are doing this? Do you give them the carrot? Do you give them the stick? Is it a mixture of both? What's What's the thought process there? It's a mixture of both. I don't like to pull the stick out unless the stick is necessary.
0: So I like to start with the carrot. And I think interestingly, what I found is that a lot of times the biggest carrot to people is empowering them to do something. Yeah. All too often, you know, especially in situations where there's underperformance, I think all too often people have a, b- a bunker mentality and they're afraid of making mistakes and they're afraid of making changes that can come back to haunt them if they get it wrong. So, you know, what I really look for is opportunities for people to make suggestions for improvements and then embracing them and executing on those improvements and then kind of, you know, talking about, you know, what a great job they did, et cetera, et cetera. And I find that when you do that, you unlock um, a lot of potential in your workforce because they feel energized. I mean, most people are discouraged when they come to work every day and they feel like they can't move the needle and they can't make a change. And, you know, even on the all the way down to the production workers, I mean, I literally, you know, I have lunch with production workers on a routine basis. I have scheduled lunches where I say, okay, you know, I'm going to have lunch with a dozen production workers you guys can volunteer or I can pull people off the floor, but we're gonna go and we're gonna have pizza and you know we're gonna discuss this, or if it's you know, in a service environment, field workers, whatever it is, and we're gonna talk about what they do every day. And you would be shocked at what great ideas people have that they feel are gonna fall on deaf ears. So they never say a word about it and they just continue doing the same thing every single day. And unless they're told by somebody at a very senior level, in a lot of organizations that their input is welcome and that they're you know that they will be rewarded now the reward might not be hey look you get a huge bonus or whatever else or it might be but no matter what what i find is the biggest reward to them is an intrinsic work it's it's really hey i feel good because i made a difference and i got praise within my group you know within my production cell within you know my production bay within my plant, from the CEO, from everybody else saying, what a great job I did, you know, for coming up with this one little thing. And it may have been something small, right? But it doesn't even matter how big it is. If somebody did something that saves $20, okay, that's fantastic. If somebody does something that saves a quarter million, even better, but you still treat it all the same. Somebody came to work that day, made a difference. It was a positive change and you pat them on the back. And then at the senior levels, of course, you know, you're going to tie it more, you know, profit sharing and, you know, things to, you know, to EBITDA so that the actual, you know, that your senior management team feels it big time, you know, in their pocketbook and are looking at moves that they make and also moves that their colleagues make to improve margins and improve sales and thinking, okay, what does that mean to me at the end of the year? You know, what kind of bonus do I get? What kind of raise do I get, et cetera, et cetera. And I try to communicate that every single month. I literally tell my team, Look, this is what you're in line for bonus wise at the end of the year based on the performance. And by the way, here's something that so and so did. You know, last month they renegotiated the contract, they won, you know, some business, et cetera, et cetera. On, you know, for the rest of the year, this is what it's going to generate. And this is literally what it means to you as an individual and your bonus money at the end of the year. And I find, you know, that, of course, is very motivating for senior managers because they can really put their finger on it. Um, and they can see from month to month how their actions and also the actions of their peers impact them and how they and their actions impact their peers. And it creates a really good, um, you know, kind of sense of camaraderie and a little bit of peer pressure too, you know, to perform and all add value. And that's really how I incentivize people, you know, to, to do, you know, to perform better and deliver those kind of results. It's a combination of positive reinforcement in a very public fashion and also at senior levels of course monetarily and you cascade the money down all the way down to the bottom if you want to um you know various sometimes you got union contracts that won't allow that etc you know that, that intervene and what have you and obviously you have to worry about you know being <laughs> not just giving away all the profitability that you generate but you know nevertheless
1: it seems to work pretty well it's worked well for me <laughs> well there's no no argument that and i appreciate the level of detail that you've gone into there. Mm-hmm. What are your influences, Brian? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to that you'd recommend that others check out?
0: So, you know, on a regular basis, I don't have that much time to, you know, to go out and listen and that sort of stuff. What I found, I've been in 36 different companies in my career. So, you know, whether it's been on the consulting side or the CEO side or the PE side. So I've gotten to see a lot of different things and work with a lot of different professionals and learn that way. But I think that the number one influence that I had, you know, probably that's, that, that I would recommend to anybody is there's a book out there. It's a very old time-tested book called The Toyota Way. Um, and it's all about the Toyota production system and their philosophy. Yep, and you probably have it on the shelf. I think- Pointing yeah, at it
1: right now. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I, I think everybody should have it on the shelf. And the thing that I really like about the Toyota Way is, you know, when people think about companies like, big companies like Toyota and they have their operating systems and they figure, okay, this is going to tell me all about how I manufacture something better. It's not really. I mean, it starts, you know, the it really starts with- OK, you're the kind of customer servant mentality all the way through the chain, starting with the end customer, you know, the, the, the auto consumer and cascading all the way down through the design team and through to the sales team and then down to the production team and then down to the supporting functions. And in a very, very succinct way describes, you know, kind of what I would view as kind of world class management of how to manage a company to excellence so that it's performing extraordinarily well in the marketplace, that it is also doing very, very well for its investors, is a good corporate citizen to its suppliers and to its employees and also to society in general. And, you know, I think that kind of message gets lost. People think, okay, well, this is all about, you know, how do I improve my throughput and how do I reduce my cycle times? But we actually get into that book. it, It really goes much, much beyond that. and and gets, you know, into strategy and into delighting customers and, you know, describes how Toyota has done a fantastic job of creating an operating system that really links every single chain, every single piece of the supply chain from a Toyota worker to a supplier worker, all the way on through to the products they produce going into an assembled car and out to a customer in such a fashion that the customer is delighted when they're driving it down the freeway and, you know, it's got a smooth ride and, you know, you hardly hear any noise, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a a really, really, um, you know, great uh, narrative on, you know, kind of anecdotal stories of how Toyota has been able to achieve what they achieved in their head.
1: Yeah, and the the message I would put out there is, these books and these processes and all these systems that might come from guys like Elon Musk and reading his biography in to Toyota way. And you're like, no, these are big organizations, but it's much easier to implement these things when you're small. Um, you know, you've done it with some pretty large organizations, 200 million plus revenue business and implementing these systems, you know, with hundreds, maybe even thousands of employees, but some organizations is a lot harder than doing it with 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. Um, so it's well worth, uh, well worth implementing. Um, so Brian, you've, if- Shared a lot of information. If anybody wishes to reach out to you, and I'm, I, if I was uh, if I was out there as a private equity t- chief exec, I'd be uh, I'd be definitely blown up your phone. What uh, was the best way somebody uh, gets in touch?
0: So the best way to get in touch is probably by email, and you know you can reach me at brian.cassidy at and that's B R I A N dot C um, A S S A D Y, and Black Advisors is spelled with an O R S at the end. So you can reach me there. You can find me on LinkedIn as well.
1: Um, You know, I'm pretty easy to find out there. So, you know, those are probably the best ways to get in touch with me. Perfect. We'll put that all in the show notes. So, Brian, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much for sharing everything you've shared. You've shared about growth. You've shared about turnaround. We've discussed lean. We've covered a ton of topics, but all around growing private equity-backed portfolio companies. Uh, So thank you very much for for everything you've shared. Okay. Thanks, Alex. And as always, thank you very much for everybody who's listening. Should you ever need private equity professional hiring or portfolio executive hiring, please reach out to us at Raw Selection. And if you've not already done so, podcasts like this are now coming out every single week with the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast. But till the next time, keep smashing it. And thank you very much for listening. Brian, that was exceptional. Thank you very much.